0: I have a very special guest for you. If you are a game designer, I am sure you already know him. Why? Because he produces an incredible amount of outstanding content um, in which he shares his game design knowledge with all of us. This way he is creating immense value for the entire game design community and therefore enjoys a very high reputation. But the extraordinary thing about our guest today is that he combines so many different roles under one head. He's not only a successful content producer, but also one of the most successful game designers of all times. And as if that were not enough, he is also a super successful businessman, leading his own publishing company, Stonemeyer Games. He raised millions of dollars on Kickstarter for his games... um, skies, uh, viticulture, viticulture, euphoria, or charterstone. For me, it is an absolute mystery how he accomplishes all of that. And that is exactly why I invited him as a guest um, to the show, because I want to ask him that. Please welcome with me the one and only Jamie Stegmaier. Welcome to the Toes, Jamie.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me. That was a very, very nice introduction. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, I appreciate um, you taking the time to come to the show. Um, yeah, it really is an honor to interview you today. Oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah. but before we start um, with our main topic, can you please share with the audience when and how your game design journey um, began?
1: Well, I, I started designing games when I was a kid, just for fun. I would I would play a board game and I would create kind of usually my own version of it. And then as an adult, I, uh, I revisited that hobby um, from a different perspective because I started to see some games show up on Kickstarter. And I was like, you know, I, I have this hobby where I love designing games. I, I see these games being successful on Kickstarter, and I also am enthusiastic about entrepreneurship. And so I designed a game, Viticulture, specifically to put on Kickstarter back in 2012. And so that was how I kind of entered the game industry um, as an adult.
0: So was viticulture your first project on Kickstarter? Uh, I had one much smaller non game
1: related project before then that was connected to a book publishing company that i was that I was a part of for a brief time um, but yeah, viticulture was the first board game related project that that was on Kickstarter and that I was involved with
0: oh, awesome and um, for those of the listeners who not know jamie really is um, an expert for kickstarter he shares a lot of knowledge um, about how to design kickstarter projects um, in the gaming industry on his on his blog and um, i can only um, recommend all of you who are interested in publishing via kickstarter um, to check out his his blog i will share the link in the show notes because it's a pure goal that you can find there
1: well, thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. I, the, I haven't run a Kickstarter project in a couple of years now, but I'm still an avid backer, and I still follow it to learn from other creators who are doing cool stuff with other games and other products on, on Kickstarter.
0: Yeah, but there is also other content that uh, people can uh, can find there. So even if you are not oh, yeah. looking for Kickstarter, you can also visit his blog. <laughs> so um, I've been thinking about a possible topic for today's show for quite a while, and while I was thinking about all of your great games and your success as a publisher and content producer, it came to my mind that the one thing that I'm really most impressed about is how consistently you produce awesome things. And um, yeah, being it games or content or Kickstarter campaigns, and I mean that that can't be coincidence anymore. So the question really is, what is your secret of success Jamie? And this question made me decide that I that I don't want to use the interview today to to talk about one specific uh, game of yours but much mm-hmm. more about your general approach of designing and publishing games. So, I was thinking that maybe we could go through the whole game design process from start to finish and you could explain how you typically approach those different phases. Um what do you think about that?
1: Yeah, let's do it. And and I'd love to hear your perspective as we talk about those different phases as well. Yeah, perfect. Uh, um, so for me, the the first stage, if I am the designer of the game, not every game that we publish is a game that I design, but if I am the designer, um, I usually start with uh, a fair amount of brainstorming, like not just an hour of brainstorming, but usually it's... Weeks, sometimes even months of brainstorming, which I think can be a lot for some designers. That might be a little for other designers. And for me, brainstorming is just sitting down with a piece of paper and a pencil, with my computer off, and so it's just me in, in a in a creative space, um, writing down ideas, writing down thematic ideas for themes, for mechanisms, uh, for and then if I come up with a cool mechanism that I think uh, that I write down an idea for a theme that I think might be interesting, and it's just a a big Pencil and paper brainstorming process at the beginning. What about you? What, how, how do you start?
0: Well, it's quite similar. I start um, typically with some kind of idea, and this idea can be mm-hmm. it can be a mechanic that I would like to explore a little bit more. At the moment, for example, I'm I'm really interested in drafting as a mechanic, and I try to push it into mm-hmm. new and different directions. So this could be mm-hmm. a starting point. And um, yeah, sometimes there is just a trigger somewhere else in my life um, that uh, that tells me wow there could be there could be a game behind behind that um maybe it's a it's a setting that is interesting or in there's also there was also um the genre of um, auto battlers that's a computer game genre at the moment which uh-huh. which i which i played a little bit and i thought wow that that could actually be a very good board game as well and so there's this is something where I find my ideas typically they pop to my head and then I sit down and I brainstorm about about them and I use a lot of um, my whiteboard a lot for that mm-hmm. and once I I finished or I need the whiteboard for something else I take a picture and I store it in my in my OneNote um software mm-hmm. which I use to yeah to collect all of my ideas for for one project so I use also pen and paper, of course, and then I take, also take a picture. But um, at the end, I like it to have everything together at one place um, stored online. So how do you yeah, approach it? Like do you have yeah. it on a, on a piece of paper for all the time, or do you transfer it to something digitally later on as well?
1: Well, it, for me, actually, usually my, my big collection of ideas is on a, a list-making web app called Trello, T-R-E-L-L-O. And so usually all the ideas, the inspirations I have from other games, from video games, like you said, from other uh, tabletop games, they go end up on that – on Trello, on, on list. And then when I'm at the brainstorming stage, it usually does stay on paper. Um, I do like the idea of taking a photo because sometimes I, since I do use pencil, it can get smudged over time. Um, but I'm often, often uh, distilling – like I'll, I'll write out a bunch of ideas on a piece of paper and then I'll distill it onto – another piece of paper that is more refined, and then that original piece of paper is no longer relevant. I'll save it in a folder somewhere, but it usually doesn't apply later. But I love the idea of taking photos and, and tagging photos with uh, what that sheet of paper or that whiteboard is about, so you can easily search for it later if you're trying to find it. Sometimes I can I have had difficulty finding a very specific idea that may have happened, that I may have written down months ago. So I'm, I'm glad you brought out the, the digital side of it.
0: Yeah so for me typically the brainstorming part does not take so long um as you just mentioned that it could take several weeks for me this is typically something that um I try to or not I try that happens to to be completed after let's say two or three sessions after that I have a mm-hmm. a rough understanding of yeah what the game idea is the the rough game idea is and then for me, more or less, the next step comes, um, starts, and maybe that's also contains some, some form of, um, of brainstorming as well. But, um, let's say I have the idea of, uh, of a setting that I would like to explore. Then, then the next step, mm-hmm. I would go to, um, uh, looking at, um, looking at different mechanics, for example, and, mm-hmm. um, uh, scroll through them and decide whether or not this mechanic could, um, could for example fit to the to the game idea to the setting idea that i have or also browse through uh, different games that i have played that um that could have interesting ideas so i do some kind of market research when i um once -hmm. i have finished my first my first initial brainstorming session so do you do some kind of market research as well before you dive deeper into into the design
1: i do yeah i mean even just in general i do try to play a lot of games from other designers and I try to stay um, in tune to other to game reviews, different uh, trends. Yeah, I, I consume a lot of podcasts and videos and written content about games. But I really like that you said that because when I when I am developing a game and maybe I've like you mentioned drafting, if I'm developing a game or designing a game and I get to the point where I'm like, okay, I think this is a game that that does have drafting. Maybe I have a, co- a few ideas that I'm excited about involving drafting. I I do really enjoy then the market research side where I maybe I'll look up top 10 lists about drafting or I'll go through list of drafting games that I've played and I'll replay them or I will watch reviews about them to kind of refresh my memory of what makes them special. Um, And I really enjoy that, that's a a lot of fun to to see all the other cool stuff that people have done with different mechanisms and themes. And uh, that's a good reminder to me of what resonated with other people and what I need to do differently so that I'm not just designing the same game that already exists.
0: Yeah, your, the content that you produce on YouTube, by the way, is also very helpful for that market research part. When you when you are talking about um, what you really liked about a specific game or or other mm-hmm. top ten list that you that you've created, I that's really helpful. For, it was for me in my uh, okay. in my phases. Yeah. Good. And once once I have a better understanding of um, what kind of mechanics my game, yeah should contain i typically go to um i do something like um putting up some constraints so mm-hmm. something like um it's a it's a game for one to four players or um, it's play time is supposed to be half an hour and not longer its weight should be uh, pretty, pretty simple for, for beginners or something like that. So do you create constraints um, as well in the in the early stage of your design phase or is this something that comes later?
1: Well, at Stonemaier Games, we have some built-in constraints. Um, like we, we will only publish a game if it plays uh, at least two to five players. So it needs to be able to play with just a couple or two friends. Uh, it needs to be played with a bigger group up to five, ideally six. And so that's a given constraint for all of our games. And we have a number of other things on our submission guidelines that are perhaps not that constrained, but some of them are like time limits for games. Like we want a game to be 45 to 90 minutes typically. And so I always have those things in mind um, as I'm designing the game. And there's also cost constraints too. I usually go to our manufacturer fairly early in the process, very early in the process really. And I say, you know, hey, I'm thinking about this for a game and I think it would be really cool to have this component in the game. Uh, is it even possible? Can we make this component and what's the rough cost for it so that I can know early on uh, if that is a constraint, if I should build around a really cool component that might cost a lot or if I should just cut it really early because I know we won't be able to produce it at a cost that will be appealing to to consumer wallets. Do you ever think about that too, like the, the, the cost of the things that you're putting in the game? When do you start thinking about that?
0: Well, for me, this comes also quite early. But um, the games that I am designing and interested in are mostly pure card games. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a bit easier because um, I do not have very... Um, Innovative new uh, game components that might cost um, a lot of money producing. So cards are pre- stay pretty much the same, um, but I consider the the number of cards that the game um, contains. So I typically try to avoid uh, designing something with uh, 500 different cards because the artwork would be much uh, way t- way too expensive. Right, right. To get it done. Yeah. And you mentioned um, Stonefire Games there and. I was also wondering if the audience of Stonemaier Games is also some kind of constraint for your games, because, I mean, you built an amazing audience there. Um, they, they, they know the game that you have already produced, and they, they follow all the information that you put out there on, on new games. So do you have this audience in audience in mind when you start creating a new game? So are you designing directly for this audience that you already built?
1: You know, that's a great question, because I, I think essentially I am, given that the the people who follow our games are people who like at least one of our games, and so there's something about that game that I like that, that fi- already fits into the stillmeyer formula. Um, I do I don't know if I think actively about that specific audience as I'm designing games, but I definitely do try to think about... The audience in general, as I'm playing, as I'm designing the game, I'm not. I'm not just design. Oh, I'm definitely not designing the game for myself. I, I might be having fun with the design process, and, and and I like different design challenges. But in the end, I want so I want a lot of people to play the game. Um, uh, both for both because it, my my the success of my company and my income is based on it, but also because I want a lot of people to have fun with it, um, and and have a have a unique, memorable experience with the game. So. I'm, I'm always thinking about the audience, but not necessarily specifically the Stonemaier audience, um, given that it's a pretty broad spectrum of people. Some of them may be just like one of our games, some of them like a lot of our games. It can really depend on the person.
0: Sure. And, I mean, in that stage, when you maybe decide what kind of components the game should contain and what kind of mechanics you want to have, um, what is what is the point in which you... Yeah, switch from from pure pen and paper to, to other tools. So how do you, how do you um, decide what kind of components go into the game and how do you track that?
1: Well, once I'm pretty sure I know what the game is, at least from uh, enough of a – once I know enough to start, put, start to put together a prototype, I do start to put together the first prototype. And my typical method of doing that is to use InDesign. It's a program, for those of you who are listening who don't know what that program is, it's similar to Photoshop or Illustrator. It's an Adobe program called InDesign that is good at creating layouts. Um, And so I use it to create the prototype. and, And as I'm creating the prototype, it's still actively very much part of the design process because I might be putting together a card that in my head or in my brainstorming, Works perfectly, but once I actually start to put it together, I realize, oh, this has way too much information on it, or I can't even fit all the information I need on it, or this doesn't have enough information. And so I'm, I'm, uh, even though it's the first prototype, and I know that a ton will change after that, uh, I'm, I still try to put a lot of thought into that initial one uh, from the design perspective and uh, layout and user experience perspective. Do how do you prototype? What's what's your uh, go-to program or method for? Creating that first version of the game.
0: So since I'm um, creating pure card games, mm-hmm. I'm um, creating these cards in Google Spreadsheet. Okay. Um, so the entire content around it, and then I'll use a little program called Nan Deck mm-hmm. that then um, gets all the information from the from the Google Spreadsheet, and um, in this game in this tool, I create the layout and then i can with one one button i can um, create the pdf files for for my entire card set and it's pretty easy because if i if i decide to change something which, which happens quite often i only have to do the change in um in my um, google spreadsheet okay nice and um but what i struggle with in this specific um time during the design process is that typically countless Ideas come to my mind, um, ideas of yeah, other mechanic that um, I could add to the game, or um, I have specific ideas for cards and components I, can, I could create, um, new goals that people could, could achieve during the game, new enemies, quests, resources, uh, narrative, and so on. Um, and the sheer amount of possible directions into which a game can be developed at that uh, stage in the design process um, can be very intimidating and even uh, overwhelming for people. So, how do you really determine which kind of mechanics go into the game and which one um, you are letting out?
1: You're right. It is, it is tough because there's, there, there are so many that you can choose from. Um, I think for me, part of it is instinct. Part of it is just trying to make something different and not trying to do the same thing that's that's been done before. And sometimes that means iterating on an initial, uh, an existing mechanism. Sometimes that means trying to create something new. But the biggest thing I think comes from actually play testing it, uh, which I st- I start play testing that initial prototype with my with people within within my company, um, my co-founder, and now we, we have one other full time employee now who who joins us for those play tests. And so when I, during this play test, I'm really trying to pay attention to what is fun, what is uh, frustrating, what is um, what is intuitive, and what just feels boring and normal and uh, lacking in a So it's, uh, it's, I'm, I'm trying to pay attention to the, how different people at the table, including myself, are reacting to the different mechanisms. And if something just doesn't feel right, if it's not fun and i don't think it can be fun with revisions i seek a completely different mechanism for it or i scrap the game if i don't think the game has any potential so it really comes from that the play test and that the actual getting to the table with humans that i can start to figure out from the as you said the many many mechanisms to choose from uh if the ones that i started with are uh, have potential or not
0: yeah and that rem- reminds me of your first um appearance here on the Nerd Lab podcast, because this is not uh, your first one. A few months ago, I asked you, um, what is the one thing you wish you had known before you started your journey as a game designer? And your answer was that you wished you had known that the first prototype is just the beginning, because <laughs> right. um, how humans interact with your game, it's something that um, you cannot predict and that is completely different from how you imagine it in your head and as a result you yeah you will have to adjust your prototype a lot until you can really deliver the experience for the players that you are looking for and um you just mentioned that you are looking for fun frustrating um, moments and what is intuitive and boring and mm-hmm. the question is what do you really focus on when you do you f- try to focus on the aspects that are fun and try to um Wrap the game around the, the fun part, or do you look around, look at the uh, frustrating parts, and try to get rid of the frustrating things?
1: Well, I'm always looking. Yeah, at, at every stage of the playtest process, I am looking for fun and frustration, both both of those two things. But for those really early playtests, I'm still trying to really figure out what the game is. Like I often playtest when I'm playtesting the game the first few times, I may not know how the game ends. And I'm just kind of paying attention to when players, uh, when, it, when it feels right for the game to end. And then I'll try to, to figure out what that means for the game. If the game should be played in a set number of rounds or if there's an end game trigger, that type of thing. So I often go into those first playtests with like a 70% framework. And as we play, we figure out the other 30% just so that we can finish that first playtest or that second playtest.
0: So do you make adjustments? during the playtest, or do you just make notes and um, do the changes afterwards?
1: Um, It depends. Typically, we make changes on the fly, especially early on. Uh, If if something is really impeding the playtest or if something is completely imbalanced, because at that early on, I I don't even really know the math for the game. I I don't know any aspects of balance, and I'm not even really trying to test the balance. But I don't want something completely broken, to ruin the first playtest because I'd rather continue and, and get a feel for uh, some of the other answers that I'm seeking. And so, if we do see something that just doesn't make sense at all, if it, uh, we'll we'll change it on the fly just so the game remains functional throughout the first or second or third playtest. What about you? Do you do you like to not make changes at all during the playtest and wait until afterward, or or do you make any changes on the
0: fly? Well, it also depends. I I sometimes have to do emergency changes all the way. Mm-hmm. For, for, for example, yeah. if um, um, two cards, for example, are too strong in combination, and I didn't see that combo um, beforehand, right. so I have to have to change them on the fly. Otherwise, the game would not be fun anymore. Um, right. And that happens quite often. Um, I also mm-hmm. I also do um, minor, but I try not to do these kind of minor changes. For example, if one creature has uh, one. Want power too much, so this is something that I wouldn't change during the playtest because, um, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it typically is the impact of it isn't not enough for me to disrupt the the player from players from playing. But um, right. all these emergency things that really, um, when the game goes into the wrong direction, um, I change it immediately, um, whenever. I yeah,
1: can. I like the way you put it. Emergency changes. Those. That's a that's a good way to put it.
0: Yes, but that also reminds me on on, on another aspect um, that I struggle with during playtesting because sometimes I have difficulties to find out if um, something that is not working is not working because of the game mechanic or the goal or the overall rules or Mm -hmm. if it is just a problem with individual cards that I could change easily um or more easily than um than changing the complete rule set so do you have some kind of magic trick to find out um where the problems come from um, during a play test so if they are more from the rule side um, perspective or more from the from the individual component perspective
1: that's a great question i i wish i had a magic answer for it uh, both for this podcast and for my own design process but i don't um it, it is sometimes really hard to tell, especially the deeper I get into playtesting a game, uh, the more I, I question, as you said, is it, is, it, uh, is it a specific element of a number of cards? Is it, is it, is it a specific component that's, that's holding back the game back? Or have I completely gone in the wrong direction with a mechanism that just doesn't fit the game and I've kind of worked around it and pieced it together and, and held it up with duct tape but really, this mechanism isn't right for the game. It's—I I don't have a magic answer. It, It's—it uh, it mostly comes down to those play tests and my gut feeling afterwards. Uh, how I how I uh, how I think the game is working or if it's not working.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Unfortunately, that is uh, the answer that I expected. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, but um, another question here with regard to prototyping is maybe if you sometimes try to test individual aspects of your game. So let's say you have some kind of game that um, contains uh, combat. So do you, would you would you um, advise someone to just try the the combat system without um, the entire rest of the mechanics, like uh, the goal or whatsoever, um, just to find out the right math or so, so specific aspects uh, or specific mini prototypes to test certain mechanics or stuff like that. Do you do that?
1: I think it depends on the context a little bit. Uh, For example, if combat is its own little mini game that doesn't really impact other strategic decisions you would make, I might test it by itself. But in a lot of cases, like in my game Scythe, a lot of the decisions you make in the game uh, have an impact on combat and combat has an impact on them like are you during the game are you spreading out and getting closer to other players or are you staying in your own home base are you spending resources to get power and is there a reason to do that beyond just combat um, or not and so if it doesn't if it is interconnected with other element other elements of the game I think the closest thing I do to what you were asking there is if combat hasn't happened in the game I might ask players, uh, well, I'm using combat as an example here, but I might ask players, why hasn't anyone done, uh, participated in combat? Why do you think that is? And I will also say, okay, well, we're just going to set this up. We're going to make a combat happen so we can see how it works and see if it works. Maybe try it a couple times in the greater context of the game. So I might force something to happen, even though players aren't organically doing it, within the context of the game just to see how it works.
0: Yes, that makes that makes sense. Um, I personally find it sometimes quite helpful to um to really test certain aspects of my game that um, to find out mm-hmm. to isolate them yeah to to yeah. then be able to identify if they cause the problem or not so right. let let's say the the combat is um working fine um, and um then i can say it's just uh, maybe another mechanic that um that interacts with the combat that causes the problem afterwards and not the combat itself mm-hmm. but that's just an example yeah or yeah. Yeah, or I could um, I would force players to start with a specific card in hand because I want um I want the, to test that specific card.
1: Right. Yeah. I think, and this is a I think a thing something I've learned over time is that playtesting is not for the benefit of the playtesters, which is very different than the final published version of the game. The final version of the game is for the players. You are doing that so that players can have a good time with it, but. Playtesting, the the game is really the the uh, the target. You're doing everything for the sake of the game, and so sometimes that means that you have to tell a player you're starting with this specific hand of cards, even though this is very different than what you want to do. I need to test this one thing, and I need you to try that. And it took me a long time to figure that out with playtesters because I, I want playtesters to have a good time instinctively, but um, but there there are many times where I just need them to try something that that they may not be happy about or that may may not be a part of their normal strategy but I need it for the sake of the game so in the for the greater good of the game that eventually it can be a game for everyone that everyone can have fun with or that a lot of people can have fun with.
0: Yeah that's absolutely true and that is something that might be difficult to accept as um, a game designer that tries to Playtest with friends because you, of mm-hmm. course, you want to impress your friends with a with a great game, and um, so <laughs> you might be a little bit hesitant to yeah to show them something that is not in a stage that you are completely happy with. So you might wait too long before you go to um, to playtest your game, um, mm-hmm. and you yeah you might um, not be uh, willing to to test these these um, or force these situations of which you know that they are broken and not working very well to happen yeah.
1: i agree yeah and that's why I actually i love that i have a uh, a business partner and now a fellow a co-worker because i don't feel bad about subjecting a terrible game to them uh they I, obviously I, I care about them and want them to have fun in general but but they know what they're getting into they're getting paid to have that experience so that that's kind of helpful I did have a question for you, Marvin. While we were talking about that, in terms of rule books. when in the design process do you usually write actually write
0: down the rules for the first time? Well, the the latest possibility um, is before you do some kind of blind test and want your want the playtesters to to understand the rules without you explaining it uh, mm-hmm. them. But um, I typically don't write them down. Um, for the first first play tests because um, yeah I, my, my feeling is that they it's not worth the time because they will um, the, the rules will change anyway. Um, right. So what I do is I create a short version, something like um, the phases in a game, for example. I would do some bullet points mm-hmm. to explain the phases the the order of the phases and or right. maybe if i have actions that uh, players can take i would um would write down the action that the players can take but this would be very very rough and uh, not could not be considered an entire rule book what's about you
1: uh it's pretty much the same yeah and i'm glad you re- you mentioned that writing down uh, sometimes just of things that players need to remember because, because i i Typically, try, for those original playtests, I try to think about just keeping the game functional, and sometimes that can mean that I need to give players a player aid so that they aren't having to remember a ton of material that I'm saying once, and that they can't reference because no rulebook exists yet. So, uh, I think I'm pretty pretty similar to that. And that, that the the first thing that I end up writing down formally will be some sort of reference content for the playtesters, and then that evolves into a rulebook uh, somewhere. For me, usually during the local playtesting stage, but it, usually at the end of it, as I'm getting ready for the blind playtesting.
0: So, yeah, we have a, a pretty similar approach here, and um, mm-hmm. I also asked the the community to submit some some questions for you, and okay. um, one of the questions, um, yeah, that it, it fits quite perfect at the you know, at the current spot here. So, um, the question is that you are or it is summarized as that you are typically really focused on having um, a smooth flow in your games yeah. so that yeah. you do not have a bunch of phases and stuff like that so how mm-hmm. do you really achieve this uh, smooth game flow in your games are you willing to to sacrifice other game elements that um, yeah would stand in the way
1: i am yeah yeah flow flow is a huge thing that i look for in designing a game a big part of that is I like to have give players um, short short turns, uh, so simple turns where they're maybe doing one at or, or at most two different things, um, and turns that they can think about in advance. So that and that actually really addresses uh, the person's question here, I think, because that adds a lot of restrictions. If you have a game that is highly highly interactive. Um, then it often becomes impossible for you to plan your turn in advance because so much can change before it gets to your turn, if it is a turn-based game. Uh, and so while I do like to have interactions in my games and reasons for players to pay attention to other players and their decisions, uh, it is a big design constraint for me that, that I, I want players to be able to plan ahead for their turn so that when it gets to be their turn, they can do those one or two quick th- things, be satisfied by it, feel clever by it, and then play continues on to the next player. And um, one other design constraint that emerges from that is that it means that I, my games often offer players all of the options, all of all the possible options every turn. So rather than having a game broken down into, into phases where you say, okay, all players, now you're going to take your farming action. And then you say, okay, we're done with that, all players, we're now going to do the auction phase. Instead of breaking things down like that for the sake of the flow of the game, uh, I give players all those options up front. Basically saying, okay, on your turn, you can you can do a farming action if you want, or you can do an auction action. You're choosing what you want for your turn, and that determines whether or not other players are going to be doing it. Sometimes that determines whether that will impact other players. So that that flow, that choice to focus on the flow, can, can definitely have an impact on other areas of, of the design. Have you thought about that in your designs, the, the aspect of flow and how that, that
0: impacts your games? Well... I, for example, I do not have it, um, written down as a constraint, for example, for my mm-hmm. games. So I do not, I, I have not written down, um, that I want to have, um, a, a good flow as a, as a design goal, for example. But of course it is, um, it is important and, um, I want to make sure that the players do not have many downtimes, for example. Right. And mm-hmm. that is also something that, um, that you can solve with flow if you have short turns, for example, that can be, um, of course, be an advantage for um, yeah you know, for the time players have to wait. And um, I would also something like um, it also interaction. What you mentioned is, plays an important role when it comes to card games. That's often has to do with responding to an action that the um, that one player does. And the question really is there: Do you allow a response or do you not allow a response? Um, because with a response a lot of a lot of complexity comes to the game and um, if you if you consider the stack in magic, for example, um, mm-hmm. a lot of decision making and stuff like that. So this is something that um, that I consider and that I think about willingly do I want to have that? because I think it's from a game perspective it is quite interesting to have the possibility to to react on everything that the opponent does. It, it adds a lot of complexity but also um, strategy. Um, but for the sake of flow, I in my most designs, um, I do not allow um, reactions on most parts of the, um, the the opposing actions. Yeah, that's a great great thing to consider. So yeah. uh, that's how I um, think about flow in my in my card games, at least. Mm-hmm. And um, do you have this as a written down somewhere as a as a constraint that you want to have that flow? So is this something that you really Write down on your whiteboard those so that you can see it every day when you when you were working on the game, or is it something that just yeah, ingrained in your uh, game designer's DNA? <laughs> uh,
1: a little bit of both. Um, I, one, it is written down in our submission guidelines. I have a document linked in the submission, submission guidelines called the, My 12 Tenets of Game Design. Um and they're just my, kind of my preferences of what I want from a game and what I would definitely want from a Stonemaier game. Besides that, it is ingrained in me to a certain extent, and I often think about it when I'm playing games by other designers. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about the flow and whether or not I'm liking how fast the turns take, if I can plan ahead for my turn, and, uh, and how much downtime there is in the game. So I, I'm almost always, when I play a game, whether it's mine or someone else's game, I'm, I'm thinking about the flow.
0: So what else is uh, written there on this uh, list of 12 things that you want to see in a game? Maybe give me well, just see. one one or two other examples. I will I will link it in the show notes if I can.
1: Sure. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of something offhand and I'll bring it up while I'm talking. Um, one is the balance between agency and luck. Uh, I do, in my games, I like randomness, I like variability, I like replayability. Um, but I I also really want players to have opportunities to make interesting decisions and to feel clever. And uh, if a game has too much luck then they that kind of removes agency and opportunities for cleverness because fate and luck is deciding instead of the players themselves. So I try I try to strike a nice balance there. Do you th- do you think about luck and replayability versus uh Uh, Not that replayability goes hand in hand with luck, but do you think about luck versus agency in your
0: designs? Yes, and um, I have done exactly this yesterday. Mm -hmm. When I was thinking about a card game, and um, it was um, we we talked about luck versus skill, so Uh skill of the player, and um, yeah, for this we we thought about uh, in the beginning. As some kind of design goal, because um, games can be very different with um, if luck is predominant or not. And um, so our goal was to have luck in the game. Mm-hmm. So because it allows, um, it also comes with with um, advantages like um, um, uh, less experienced player has a better chance to um, to win against a very experienced player, for example, in a game that has a lot of luck. Um, Right. right. But our goal, really, for this game that we're working on, um, is to have it skill-based, but not Mm -hmm. completely without luck. So we wanted maybe, if we could, uh, um, could um, tell it in percentages, we would say maybe seventy-five percent skill and twenty-five percent luck.
1: I like that. I like that You, you. I I don't think there's a correct version of that, but I think it's great for any designer to think about that ratio. Uh, of how much how much luck versus agency do you want in your game? That that's definitely something that I try to think about.
0: Yeah. Anything else from your list that you want to mention?
1: Well, one other one that I do have I've thought increasingly about over the years is, uh, and I mentioned this word er- earlier, but how intuitive the game is to learn, understand, and retain, and uh, the retention is probably the most. Recent addition to that list because I want games that are not only easy to to teach and learn for the first time, but also if you don't play for a few months or even a few years, I want the game to not be so intimidating that you can pull it off the shelf and be happy to get it back to the table, maybe by looking up a few rules, but not a lot. And so I've really tried to think about that with my designs over the last few years. Uh, how easy is this game going to be to get to the table for the first time? And how intuitive are the decisions you're making in terms of uh, the, the mechanisms, the themes, how i have explain things in the game and in the rules for players to remember it. So that when they play it many months later, they uh, they don't have to reread the rulebook and relearn the game.
0: I think that is a very smart thing to do, because um, if I look at my shelf, there are a lot of games that um i haven't played for months and when mm-hmm. we have our weekly game gaming session we are sometimes intimidated by some of those because uh, it would take us yeah. uh, at least half an hour if not more to to understand um the rules again so right. if you have a game that um where well, the goal is that players uh, yeah keep playing it um, with a lot of replayability and maybe with some expansions coming out for the game i think that's a very um, intelligent thing to think about ahead but um, what would be an action to to achieve that so um, do you really if you let's say you you created a game and during the playtesting phase um, you you realize that it might um, suffer in that area so do you what do you do
1: yeah, I do something very specific here. When, when I'm playtesting the game, I look for how often I use the word remember. And there are different keywords that I think players could pay attention to here, or, or designers. But basically, um, if I am teaching a game and I, throughout the game I keep saying, oh, remember to do this, or Re- remember this is how this works, or, or Re- remember this, uh, remember this thing that I told you before, whenever I use that word, i I, after i say whatever sentence that follows it i think to myself i shouldn't have to remind this person of this of whatever this rule is and if i'm having to remind them then either i have not conveyed it properly in the user interface of the game or it's something that shouldn't even go in the game in the first place because clearly players aren't remembering it and uh that, that there's a reason for that. They're they're not remembering it for a specific reason. I, I have to figure out what that reason is. But that is the thing that that I do very specifically during playtest. I I try to look for my use of the word remember. Do you have anything like that where you kind of pay attention to even your the way that you are talking about a game to playtesters that that makes you realize oh this this thing isn't working because I keep telling them the same thing and they are not getting it things like that.
0: Yeah, I mean you can figure that out if um, the same. And you figured out for other reasons as well. But if the same um, or other playtesters, no, if the same playtesters make keep making the same mistakes, um, right? Um, yeah. if, and maybe not even at the same session, maybe at the next session, they do the same mistake again that you already explained to them. So that might be um, um, a sign that this uh, rule is yeah either too complex or uh, difficult to remember, yeah, um, or not intuitive. So I think if a game is very intuitive, it's also easy to remember the rules. Mm -hmm. And also another thing that um, that plays into the same uh, goes into the same direction is um, if the theme of the game is uh, very well ingrained with the um, with the mechanics. So if it's if it's logical what you are doing, the the, that's how that helps to remember um, how something works.
1: I, I completely agree. Yeah, that that can really really help. Uh, long-term memory of a game and for that initial explanation if, if it if it's an easy concept to explore to explain because you can explain it thematically that makes a huge difference
0: okay i'm that let me let me um you know, close this playtesting stage maybe with another community question um somebody um on reddit it was on reddit by the way um talked about a quote and that quote um it originally is intended for paintings, but you can use it for game design as well. Um, and the quote is, "A painting, or in that case, a game design, is never finished. It simply stops uh, in interesting places." Mm-hmm. So, how do you feel, well, about this quote? And probably, the question was especially relating to Thais because um, um, the uh, the listener was uh, mentioning that. There are so many ideas that could have been changed or added with Thais. So the question really is, how do you decide um, when to stop? When is the game finished during the playtesting?
1: Well, for me, I use two metrics to help with that decision. And I completely agree with that quote, that it is a very subjective decision to stop designing a game and actually start producing it. but the the two things, the metrics that I use are one is uh, kind of really my gut instinct. If the game feels finished, that certainly plays a part in it. It's not entirely data driven. Um, the and so that one's hard to explain. I don't. I, I think every designer kind of has to just pay attention to whether or not they are fully satisfied with how the game has turned out based on their experience and the experience of playtesters. The other part is about the playtesters. When I run blind playtests for games, one of the que- questions I ask is please rate your experience with this version of the game on a one to 10 scale, the the board game geek scale basically. And I pay attention to where that number is and how it is hopefully rising over time. And ideally when a game is only getting eights, nines, and tens, um, when it reaches that point, I realize, okay, I'm at a pretty good place here. and really, the, I guess the last point, point to come from that data is also the balance of, of different elements of the game, especially if there's asymmetry in the game, looking at that data from the, the balance perspective too and saying, okay, uh, the from the, a data perspective, the game is finally as balanced as I think I can get it with only a few hundred playtests. Um, I, I, I think based on this data that the game is, is ready.
0: I mean, most of your games have... Um a rating between 8 and 10 on boardgamegeek so you're doing a good job there um with that <laughs> metric um yeah awesome and well what is the next step when you um decided that the game is yeah is in a spot would you I would say it is ready to to get published to get um delivered what what um what do you do next
1: well my answer i'm sure will be different than I think this heavily depends on who you're asking this to. In the case, if, since you're asking me, um, as the, because I publish the games that I design and publish games from a few other designers, at this point in the process, I have probably already made most of the art for the game. And so it really becomes a question of graphic design at that point. So I'm sending all the, the final files. And I'm working through the rulebook one final time, even though that's been very much in place throughout the, the blind playtest process and revising that. So I'm basically putting together all those files and sending them to my graphic designer. Um, sometimes I've even done that a little bit earlier in the process if I need to test a certain element of the user interface. But, uh, but yeah, that is the point where I send everything to the graphic designer and start uh, start the, the next step of. The, the layout, the proofreading, and getting the game ready for the final files that I'm sending to the printer. But that answer might be very different from a designer who is not a publisher. Um, that might be the end of the road that they might that might be the point where they start pitching the game to publishers.
0: Yeah, maybe let's let's stick with the with the publishing um, aspect a little sure. bit. Um, sure. sure. I mean, in the beginning, you mentioned that uh, entrepreneurship is um, something that um, you were interested in, and maybe that was the reason you started your own uh, publishing company. But I talked to a lot of people from from my audience, and um, well, while I'm an entrepreneur myself, um, a lot of them are quite, um, yeah, not terrified is not the correct word there. Um, <laughs> they have a little bit of um, they're anxious because um, they do not know how much they can really, really earn with it. And if they if they can go full time in the industry with um, with being a publisher. Um, and okay. I mean, from a from a entrepreneurship per, uh, perspective, um, it would probably be more profitable to go into it or accounting or whatsoever. So, um, did you have that considerations in the beginning as well, um, if it would be worth it to do it, or what would you would be your advi- advice for yeah for people um, that are yeah just about to 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 start out with their first game and um, want to become a publisher?
1: Well, my I think my first suggestion here is, uh, and this was my experience when I when I started working on viticulture, I was doing it. Uh, uh, Largely for fun. I was hoping it would be successful from a uh, financial standpoint, but I was doing it because I I loved it and I was having fun with it, and I made no changes to my full-time job. I did not expect that it would ever become a job, and that would be my initial suggestion for designers, um, that if you're loving the design process, uh, that you – don't assume that it will ever become your full-time job, because that can almost be a dangerous path to start to think about that really in the process. As a designer, you, I think you really need a hugely successful game uh, that you're earning royalties from on, an, on a long basis for that to even have a chance of being a full-time job. And as a publisher, uh, it's a very different experience than just being a designer, I I think it, like like you mentioned, like I said, I I had a passion for entrepreneurship. I I love running a business. Um, But a lot of people might just want to be a game designer, and that's okay. Uh, But that's probably not a career path for most people. And so having having that steady full-time job, in addition to designing games on the side for fun, I think there can be a really nice balance there. Um, It doesn't need to be a full-time endeavor.
0: And... um... I'm not sure if everyone really, at, at least um, of the first-time designers, do understand what it means to be a publisher. So, what um, what what are the the daily tasks that you that you work on as a publisher?
1: Yeah, there's, there's quite a bit, and it depends on the day. Uh, there's usually a few hours of customer service, answering emails, uh, paying attention to social media, and answering questions before customers have even thought to ask us uh, directly. Uh, and, uh, there's usually a few hours of project management and, and just people management. You're, you since I'm running the business there, there, I'm kind of the hub for a lot of people that do a lot of different things to help still games. People like, like the play testers we've talked about, accountants, lawyers, um, uh, or replacement parts, helpers, all these different people that help my business function. So there's that, that project management side of it. Um, And part of it is uh, uh, marketing and exposure, like the the blog entries I write, the videos I make. So I'm I'm putting content out there that I hope is valuable for other people. Um, Some part of it is sales, usually not direct. Like I'm not uh, actively asking people to buy our games, but I try to maintain our web store and try to make it easy for people to have a a good experience there. Um, And part of it is the project management side of uh, making sure – enough games are produced at the right times there's a lot of back and forth between me and our manufacturer all these things are things that can happen on a daily basis there's always usually some troubleshooting there's rarely a day that nothing goes wrong even a small thing and so usually i'm fixing something and if i can get through all that sometimes i have a few hours left in the day to spend on game design and game development that is uh, a gift when that happens but it is not every day that that happens
0: yeah, let me come back to that later. But um, before we get there, um, yeah, that sounds like you are, yeah, a check of all trades, I would say. Um, that's typical, typically for, um, yeah, for being an entrepreneur that you have to, um, yeah, fulfill different roles in, um, in the company that, um, compared to a large company where you have um, an employee for all of those different tasks. So right. which, which task do you, prefer the most or which one do you like the most and which one, um, yeah, you, you probably, you maybe don't like that much of the ones that you just mentioned?
1: Well, I, I really enjoy the project management side of it. I like, uh, enabling talented people to do great work and, and managing that, that process. So that there are many things that other people are much better at than I am. Like I mentioned the accountants and lawyers, I am terrible at accounting. I know nothing about law. Um, and so it's, satisfying for me to to work with our lawyer because i know he's going to do a great job and and more managing that communication between him and i so i, I really enjoy kind of uh, having that that hub role of uh finding the right people to do very specific things that uh, make the experience of so my games better for everyone involved so i i love that that project management side of things from the business side
0: i've seen your um i don't know if they have if I can call them project plans they are kind of project plans but they they are more like release plans i would call them mm-hmm. um that you send around um via mail and i yeah. think this is something that is really really interesting because people get excited maybe there's something mentioned um as a project with a with just um a temporary name and people do not know what kind of game or expansion it will be um so you create that kind of excitement with your uh, for your audience so um when you work on a new design at what point in time do you start to to share that you're working on a new game with your audience
1: uh you know it's hard for me i get so excited about working on new projects that uh I usually like to talk about it in some way. Usually it's very vague, though, because as we've talked about today, a game can change so much from the beginning to the end. So um, I talk in very vague, in a very vague manner. So, like I do these weekly Facebook live streams and I like to talk about what I'm working on. But I might say, OK, I'm, I'm working on a new game and I'm really excited about it. But I won't talk about the game or the mechanisms or the theme or anything about it because all of that is subject to change. Over time, So I usually wait, uh, really the method that Stonemaier Games has uh, that we've moved towards over the years is that I wait to give any details or any names about our games until we've already made them. And we can announce it and let people get excited about it for a few weeks, and then we can start selling the game to them right away. So uh, for those detailed elements, I wait to share them until we've already made the game.
0: Yeah, and that is... But that is also a trend that I have um, recognized in the digital gaming industry, by the way. Um, mm-hmm. It seems in our yeah, new uh, era where people have a very short um, attention span, um, it it seems to be difficult um, to retain excitement um, for something new. So um, if one of the larger publishers uh, announces a new game, um, it is most of the time, always uh, already playable as a um, closed beta, or even maybe as an open beta, a few days later. So, um, right. in, in the past, that was completely different. When Blizzard announced the game, you had to wait uh, three years before you were able to see the first picture, maybe. Yeah. So um, right. yeah, maybe that is um, that is a good tactic for, um, for for our the time we are currently living in. <laughs> So you mentioned all the stuff that you are that you you have to manage and you are working on, and um, the amount of things that you have to do and that you produce is um, yeah it's crazy. And uh, I only personally I only know two people um, who are so productive and successful in this industry from a game design and content production perspective. Um, the first one Here's is the, other one. Yeah.
1: the, the first one curious. is
0: uh, Mark Rosewater, lead designer of Magic: The Gathering. Oh wow, well, yeah. I don't know if you know yeah. him, but um I do. he yeah. produces well, I know I've his word. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. He produces um an incredible amount of um of content, game design content. He also produces a podcast and stuff like that. Um mm-hmm. and the other person of course um, is you. Um and I'm really wondering what your schedule looks like. So how much time do you spend on a a weekly basis on, let's say, game design? Or um, do you have specific days um, that you work on specific topics? Have you a very strict schedule um, in order to be so consistent? How does your typical work week look like? How do you structure it to be so consistent?
1: Well, the work week itself is uh, the main structure that I have in place is what content am I producing today? Uh, in terms of immediate content that I'm sharing. So on like Mondays and Thursdays, I write a blog post. On Tuesdays and Fridays I and Sundays, I do a video. On Wednesdays, I do a Facebook Live video. And every day I do a, an Instagram post about game design. So those are like the most structured elements that are built into my schedule on a weekly basis. On a daily basis, it usually starts out with all those things that I mentioned to you a few minutes ago, and they just they carry on through the day until I'm done with them. And then I, if I have time left, then I spend time on game design. Um, and lately, actually, that started to change a little bit. That, that part is the same, but the, the time that I've had for game design has increased a little bit lately because I did hire our first full-time employee ever, other than myself. And Joe has done a wonderful job over the last month. He's, he's about just over a month into his job of handling customer service. Um, I'm still very active with our customers and our fans and hopefully potential customers and potential fans, but um, he has managed a lot of the day-to-day stuff and so that's given me more time for game design. So now I, there are days where I get to spend the entire afternoon and some of the evening on game design, whereas before it might have been an hour between 9 and 10 at night that I could do that.
0: You know what? The um, There's also one um, similarity between you and Mark Rosewater that uh, I just came to my mind. Um, so? And as the one that you produce um, a lot of content and you do it consistently, so um, mm-hmm. I'm very much interested in how you do it that consistently. Um, but the the similarity here is um, you do not spend too much time to um, to make your content look super pretty. For example, there are no animations yeah. in your YouTube videos and stuff like that. You just record right. you record something and put it out there, and um, or do a Facebook live, for example. So, um, isn't it sometimes difficult for you to, um, to put something out there that might not be, let's say perfect.
1: Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really astute observation. Um, because you're right. Yeah, I, I, have kind of picked and I pick and choose the content that I want to make as perfect as possible. And the blog and the video, uh, the videos that I make are not in that category. That's content that I just, uh, it's, I think it's, it's, it's something I do for fun. It's something I do that hopefully adds value to other people. And it's nice for me to be able to process those thoughts about game design and about Kickstarter and entrepreneurship. But I also know that I don't want to spend 15 hours a week on it. I want to spend maybe five hours a week on it at most. Um, I want my video, I, like you said, for my video. I usually I, I press record. I usually do one recording and I'm done in five minutes. And then the the other stages of like uploading it and creating the the image for it, they maybe take another ten to fifteen minutes. But that's it. And I've kind of decided along the way that I uh I don't want to spend more than that amount of time on it. I admire creators that do, um, but for me that's my limit. And uh, any more than that, in my opinion, would take me away from the the core things that I need to do for Stillmire Games to
0: be successful. Yes, and um, don't get me wrong. I didn't mean that as a kind of offense. I, I, love, oh, your, no, no. I, I love your content, yeah, no. <laughs> and I think it's a it's a correct thing to do. But um, yeah. when I when I mean not perfect, I mean I just meant that um, yeah, other people spending hours over hours uh, doing um, special animations, for example, that is not really right. necessary for the content that you want to deliver. Um, exactly. But uh, and. Others might uh, need two hours in or three hours in the bathroom before they um, turn on the camera. <laughs> the camera, and that right. the underlying problem here is, from my perspective, is perfectionism, and that is something yeah. that can really hinder yourself from from um, putting yourself out there and also putting your game out there. And um, yeah, I think it's a um, it's a it's a good habit to to do something consistently on a scheduled basis maybe weekly maybe once a day how do you do it and um, yeah i'm struggling with it myself but um yeah my goal for this year is to produce uh, consistently one episode per week and up to now i did it so every every monday the Nerdlab podcast is available
1: that's great <laughs> yeah good that you, you picked that and, and stuck with it for so long that's amazing
0: yeah um and yeah maybe let's put all that together. You are um, really successful in the industry. And um, when we look about what kind of content you produce, maybe one last que- question to that direction, because I would like to know if you think, oh, to what degree your, um, your um, social media content um has to do with your success as a game designer, and would you um, would you advise newer game designers to yeah to put themselves out there as well as a tactic?
1: Hmm. Um, well, let's, you know, I've answered first everything so far. Why
0: don't, why don't you answer first, and I'll, I'll throw out my thoughts after you. <laughs> of course, that's a good answer, by the way. Um, <laughs> something that you only learn when you have done a, a lot of interviews. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I cannot really tell because i'm not yet a successful game designer but um i think so and that's exactly why i produce that podcast because um i want to get into the industry and and that does not only mean that i want to find customers for my games that i want to produce no i also want to get connected with all the other people great people in the industry and the opportunities that i got from producing this podcast and putting myself out there, they are incredible. Talking to you, for example, as, as just one example. And um, I think it's definitely worth to, to put yourself out there. But I cannot really answer the, the question um, if it really helps you to be successful um, as, a, as a game designer or publisher. But um, I think um, it can only help.
1: I think my answer is fairly similar to that in that it is, I, I'm sure that there are successful designers out there who um, who aren't active on social media and who don't focus all that much on relationships in the community or the industry. They just love designing games and they're very good at it. I, I am 100% sure there are people like that out there. Um, but as you said, I don't think it can hurt I, 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 unless you're really bad at those interactions. I, so I guess it can hurt if you're really bad, if you get really defensive, um, if you if you uh, if you're insulting to people. So if you are not a good with other people, then it, it can hurt. But usually, if you are enjoying those interactions and people seem to be having fun when you interact with them, I think that type of engagement with either the community or other people in the industry uh, can be beneficial. And my general uh, uh, I don't know if I would call it quite a recommendation, but my my uh, preferred approach is that um, a lot of that engagement is public uh, because uh, that way, even within that engagement with the people that you're talking to, whether they're in the industry or the community or or, or both, um, that that other people are are have a chance to participate in that interaction and see that interaction and maybe benefit from it, opposed to a private email uh, or a a series of private communications where maybe really you are the one you alone are the one getting the benefit from that. Um, like with your podcast, like we, you could have reached out to me and said, Jamie, I just want to talk to you for an hour and, and that's it. I just want to talk. But instead you reached out and said, Jamie, I want to have a conversation with you and record it for my podcast and share with other people and have it become part of a greater conversation. And that to me shows a, a generosity of spirit and time that I think is very appealing uh, for me and for other people in the industry. I think that type of engagement and participation can be very fruitful.
0: Yeah, I agree. And, um, yeah, I, you're right. We are talking for more than an hour now and, um, I want to be respectful with your time, of course. So, um, I think we, yeah, we can, we can wrap this up and come to the end. What do you mean?
1: That sounds great. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, okay. But, uh, Really, before we close the show, I I want to take one more minute of your precious time um, to thank you in the name of the entire community uh, for your ongoing efforts uh, for the for the game design industry. Um, I know that many aspiring game designers look up to you because you achieved what they want to achieve themselves, and thank you very much for being an inspiration and for sharing your yeah your progress and. Um, your advice with with all of us
1: oh you're you're welcome and and thank you so much for saying that i'm i'm uh flattered that 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 anyone would would look up to me in that way and that that means a lot to me i never thought i would really be in that position and so if uh that that feels really good thank you for saying that
0: okay jamie so is there anything else that you would like to share maybe where the people can find you
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, com is the hub for a lot of the things that we talked about today. It has the uh, the blog that's largely about Kickstarter and crowdfunding entrepreneurship. It has links to Instagram and YouTube and Facebook and all that stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, so yeah, everything is connected there at com. Okay,
0: then you will find the, the link in the show notes. And yeah, once again, thank you very much for your time, Jamie. Um, and have a nice... Nice day. Thank you so much. You too. Okay. Goodbye. Bye. One more thing before you go, because after the interview, I, of course, had to look at the list of 12 tenets of board game design by Stonemire Games, which um, Jamie and I talked about. Um, the list contains some very interesting aspects of board game design that I fully agree with. For example, the ability to plan ahead, which we talked already about. Or the concept of rewards and forward momentum, which means that a game should always have some form of progression and um, never develop backwards. What I also find very important is the potential for memorable moments. I also covered this topic for example in episode 5 of this podcast by talking about um, emergent narrative. Um, this episode covered the topic of how to, to build a game in a way those that players have the opportunity to create memorable moments in the game. So, when I looked at the list of the 12 tenets from Stonemire Games, not only did I get some inspiration for future podcast episodes, but I also got some ideas on what I need to focus more in my own designs. I then took the list of Jamie's twelve tenets and compared it with my list of um, yeah favorite resources. For example, blog posts, videos, uh, forum discussions, and board game geek um, lists that I always um, yeah save when I when I read them, and um, I think I could use them later on because I find them helpful. The result um, is now a list of helpful links that I will use for future podcast episodes. But I thought um, I might also um, share the list with you, um, listeners. It might be helpful for you as well. So you do not have to wait until I find the time to produce a podcast episode for all of these um, different uh, game design um, yeah, ideas and tenets. So um, I will tr- distribute the list um, with the next um, like newsletter. So if you are not already... Um, on the list, please go um, to nerdlikeaboss.com and um, join the Nerd Lab uh, newsletter or follow the first link in um, in the show notes so that you will um, get the list of resources directly to your inbox. So, thank you very much for um, yeah listening to this entire interview and I hope you enjoyed it. I had a great time talking to Jamie and until next week, keep shooting for the moon and... Nerd like a ball.